This is the City of God podcast, where Christ meets culture. And welcome to the City of God podcast, where we are talking weekly about today's biggest cultural issues all through the lens of God's infallible word. I am Rob Pacienza. I am joined by my co-host, John Rabe. Hello, John, great Rob. to see you. It's great to see you as always as well. We've got a great show planned today. Uh, absolutely. A few weeks ago, we had our annual conference at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in conjunction with the Institute for Faith and Culture, Kingdom Come. Had a number of guests from all around the country, and one of those guests, Dr. Michael Kruger, was speaking at the conference, but also joined us for this podcast. Yeah, we had a fantastic array of guests. I'm glad that our listeners will get to hear from all of them at various points on this podcast. But you're right. Uh, Michael Kruger is a guy that I have uh, really appreciated because he is one of those uh, rare persons who exists both in the academic world and in the world of sort of popular Christianity. He writes for laymen. So he writes for scholars and he writes for for laymen. He's the president of Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, Charlotte, North Carolina. He's professor there of New Testament and early Christianity. He's written a bunch of books, uh, academic stuff like on the canon of scripture, how, and we talk about this a little bit, but how the canon came together, how it was decided which books were there and the sort of messy process by which God drew together the canon. And then he's also the author of the book, Surviving Religion 101, Letters to a Christian Student on Keeping the Faith in College, a a book very much directed towards parents and even students uh, going going into college, recognizing that we're losing so many of them right now. So really just right on the front end of everything that we need. And I know we'll talk about that book as well, Surviving Religion 101. I read the book uh, last year. It's actually required reading for our faculty at our school, Westminster Academy. Required by you. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) As as they're being uh, formed and developed and raised up to go off to college. Uh, But you're right. We talked about a host of things and it showed really um, just how diverse he was. I mean, you could talk about uh, the formation of the New Testament canon. We talked about the Gnostic gospel. Gospels, yep. uh, but also got very practical in our discussion yeah, as well. Yeah, what about this next generation? We talked to him extensively yeah. about that. So it's he, he was here at part of the Kingdom Come conference. We were talking about the sufficiency of God's word today right. in our culture and really wanted him to talk about both at the conference and on this podcast, the sufficiency of God's word for the family. When parents are scrambling out there to figure out what in the world are we, how in the world are we going to navigate this cultural moment, raising these children's with uh, progressive ideologies, the rise of secularism, we need a call to action. And that call to action that comes from Michael Kruger is stick to the word, the sufficiency of God's word in all, uh, throughout history, in all times, in all places. But particularly now, we need to be reminded that it is sufficient uh, for all of life, particularly for the raising up of your children. Amen. He's a brilliant academic guy who doesn't speak or communicate like an academic. And so, very listenable. We we did this conversation with him. You and I both know we could have gone three times longer with the conversation than we yeah. actually did and still not run out of stuff. Absolutely. So without further ado, here is our interview with Dr. Michael Kruger. Dr. Michael Kruger, so glad to have you on the City of God podcast as the president of RTS Charlotte and also the professor of New Testament. Can you explain to our audience the complexity, the historical complexity that led to the New Testament as we know it? Yeah, well, I mean, that's a big question, but I mean, the key word there is complexity. Um, you know, one of the things I tell my students is 
you know, since we believe in inspiration and we believe in inerrancy, sometimes we can have this impression that the Bible was sort of lowered from heaven on golden tablets, you know, kind of like the angel Moroni and Mormonism or something. And, you know, this sort of overly pristine process. But the process was was lengthy and complicated. Um, it didn't happen in one week, month, one month or one year. Um, but the more I've studied it, the more confident I've grown in how God oversaw the whole thing. And you see a remarkable unanimity around the books of the New Testament canon very early. And I think that speaks to the fact that those books were, were speaking with God's voice and the church with the spirit was recognizing God's voice in them. And this can sound like an academic discussion, perhaps sometimes. Maybe there are people listening who just, I don't ever think about that. I have my Bible and that's that's what I use. But um, as you and I, uh, Dr. Kruger, were talking about before we started rolling here, you turn on any documentary on television on quote unquote Christianity, and it will be filled with scholars bringing forth the Gnostic Gospels, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip, and, and mm-hmm. sort of the same cast of characters. The reality is these questions about how the the New Testament canon was formed are are crucial, and where you come down on that takes you in a lot of different directions. And the, and the cultural the culture is telling us that the real uh, canonical books or the 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 most valuable books were those that were excluded in some kind of a power play. Uh, so w- why do we need to address this? And and what's what's the truth about all that? What's the truth about uh, the idea that that the 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 better gospels were excluded by the sort of patriarchal church structure? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing I'd say is that I think the average Christian probably doesn't know a whole lot about how the Bible came together. And I think the church needs to think long and hard about how to do better to prepare people for that. Now, a lot of people go through their whole Christian life not really knowing where the Bible came from, and they can be very committed, faithful Christians and and be fine. But the problem happens when they talk to non-Christians or they read a book that's written by a non-Christian or they see that documentary you just referenced, and suddenly they're like, well, now what? I never heard this before, and they're, they're, they're caught completely unprepared. So I think the church has a lot of work to do to help people understand where the Bible came from and on my side of it, where the New Testament came from. And you highlighted one of the big claims out there, which is that the New Testament and the Bible as a totality was really just the product of some power play, typically put on the lap of Constantine in the Mm -hmm. fourth century, that he put the Bible together and excluded the books he didn't like and then kept the books he did, and that's Christianity, and it's just a totally arbitrary affair. Well, uh, you know, that all plays really good rhetorically. The problem is none of that's true historically. Um, You know, Augustine, or uh, sorry, Constantine had nothing to do with the picking of the canon. The Council of Nicaea had nothing to do with the picking of the canon. And I tell my students often that, believe it or not, there was not a vote that determined the canon. Hmm. The canon grew up organically and naturally within the early church, and I think that actually speaks to its authenticity. You're here uh, in Fort Lauderdale, the Kingdom Come Conference, uh, being sponsored by the Institute for Faith and Culture, and the topic is the sufficiency of God's Word. Mm-hmm. Why is this such an important topic, particularly in the North American church today? Yeah, well, I mean, it's connected to some of the things we've been talking about. So the sufficiency question is quickly related to the truth question. Uh, They go together. The only way we would believe that Scripture is sufficient for our needs, whether it's sort of personal needs or corporate needs or church needs or family needs, is if you believe it's true and given by God. So the foundational issue that I've spent a lot of time working on is why do we think it's true? Why do we think it comes from God? And if it does, then wouldn't God have given us what we need, a sufficient foundation for the life he calls us to live. And so once you put the two together, truth of God's word, sufficiency of God's word, that's the the the, the building blocks for sola scriptura, which is the church's 
uh, you know, foundation coming out of the Reformation. And that doesn't mean that Scripture is the only thing we ever look to for knowledge or that it's the only source of authority, but it's always the highest authority. There's nothing over the Bible because of the, those two factors. It seems that there is this sort of process of, uh, you know, this very postmodern idea of wanting to pick and choose and, and find sp- spiritualities that suit us individually. And I think, again, that perhaps takes us back to this question of of these Gnostic Gospels. You know, you, you go back to the Da Vinci Code. That's been about 15 years ago. That's old hat now. And yet the, the claims still exist. It's interesting to me, what what do we find in, say, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip, these, these Gospels that are so often held out in the media as better uh, Gospels that certainly seem to track more with a progressive notion of... Of, of Christianity, uh, but what do we see in those? What makes them attractive, and how are they markedly different from the actual New Testament documents? Yeah, there's really two layers to that. Um, some people uh, sort of preface or, or prefer those Gospels not because they necessarily have read them or think they're great or have some content they love. <laughs> Rather, they, they, they talk about those Gospels because it, it creates this illusion of alternatives. Mm. It gives you this idea that, that there's multiple views of Jesus, and since there's multiple views of Jesus, they claim, then therefore no one view could be right. And if no one of you could be right, then you get to kind of pick the Jesus and pick the gospel that suits your fancy. And we'd like hidden things, too. Yes, oh, you yeah. Don't, I mean, you don't we know love about conspiracy theories. Right. We love right. the idea that you thought it was one way for thousands of years, yeah. and now we realize it's another. So there's a lot that going on. But I think the idea behind it is this idea of uh, it is a postmodern idea still, which is this idea of that diversity of views means no one view can be right. And so if I can just show that no one agreed about who Jesus was, if I can just lay out all these other gospels, then, then, then I can give people the freedom to sort of pick their pick their gospel and pick their Jesus. Now, that works great, again, rhetorically. The problem is, is that lying behind that is an assumption that all these gospels are equally valid in their historical value. Um, and I and others have argued that that's not the case. The Gospel of Thomas, for example, is clearly a second century production, has quasi-Gnostic teachings that are sort of more about us than it is about God, um, sort of about we can be divine rather than, than Jesus is divine. I can see why that would be appealing <laughs> to a modern person. But um, there's no reason I think it goes back to the days of the apostles and doesn't have nearly the credibility of our canonical four. Mm. You you wrote the book, Surviving Religion 101, Letters to a Christian Student on Keeping the Faith in College, a book that I highly recommend to everybody watching and listening to this podcast. In fact, it's required reading for all of our faculty and staff at our school, Westminster Academy. What led you to write this book? Yeah, so I'm I'm actually going to say a little bit about this in my uh, session coming up, but in uh, the preface actually explain what led to it. And there's really two things that led to it. One is my experience as a student at UNC Chapel Hill when I was a freshman and found myself in a religion class with, with no answers to a very aggressive and articulate professor who was bent on critiquing the New Testament. And I found myself in a really difficult place reckoning with that. And that has stuck with me. And so I've committed my career to finding the answers to these things. Um, and then when my own daughter went off to the same university, UNC Chapel Hill, I realized that that's really the second reason I need to write this book, not only because of what I went through, but because I know what she would experience. And so wow. I wrote the book out of a little bit of what I endured, but I know many other students have also endured, and my own daughter was set to endure, 
Um, and I just have a heart for making sure that, that, that students know there's answers and have at least access to those answers uh, when they face those situations. What are those kinds of situations now? Because as you said, I, I think the challenges maybe from when I was a young man are different now than they uh, are different now for this generation. What sort of challenges did you expect her to face? What is it that a, a young man or woman graduating from high school and heading off to college with uh, with their Christian faith, what, what challenges are, are they going to face in the setting of a university? Yeah, well, that was one of the challenges in the book, right? So the book has 15 chapters covering 15 issues, and, you know, there's 115 issues mm. easily you could put in a book like this. In fact, I've already had conversations with Crossway about doing a surviving religion, you know, 202, uh-huh. like as a next volume here. But so I'd be very selective on what I included. But I mean, some of the questions in here in this book are very similar to the ones I dealt with in college. Um, and that we all probably dealt with in college, which are going to be things as, as, as well known as things like the problem of evil and, you know, how can one religion be true and all others not be and the exclusivity of Christ question, mm-hmm. you know, the reliability of the gospels questions. Okay, those are all going to come up and they're in the book too. But then also in her generation, they're just facing things we didn't face. Um, I think we all know that the, 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 the issues related to sexuality are heightened at a point now that's really unprecedented. It wasn't, if, wasn't as if when I was in college people were sexually moral. Of course they weren't. Mm-hmm. But sexuality was not the frontline debate of the day. Um, and then the other thing that I think is really different now, which I cover in the book, is that the accusations against Christianity when I was in college was more that it wasn't true. Accusations against Christianity now are more that it's it's not so much that it's untrue, but that it's but it's uh, it's bad, it's mm-hmm. evil. So there's an ethical, moral accusation now that is relatively unprecedented. Intolerant, bullying. Yeah. So a, you know, it's one thing not to believe something because it's historically you know you know shaky. It's another thing to reject it because you think it's just inherently bad. And so Christianity mm-hmm. now is rejected because it's seen as evil, um, which is a really bizarre turn of events when you think about it. Right. So. Yeah. Interesting. You're in the business of producing ministers for full-time vocational ministry. As ministers are going out from RTS, uh, particularly RTS Charlotte, what are some of the biggest challenges these ministers are going to face right now? Oh, wow. There's so many. Um, We live in such a divided and, and fractured world right now. I mean, everyone coming off of the COVID thing knows that churches are are struggling for lots of reasons, mm-hmm. um, a lot of infighting, uh, a lot of challenges as they face with a hostile world. But, w- but what I tell my students is, yeah, I get all that. And there's particularities about that that perhaps are unique to our situation. But on the flip side, what we're going through is actually not new. Mm-hmm. And you can go back into church history and the biblical history and see that God's people have faced these things before. And I would argue probably much worse yes, uh, no before. Um, and that we need to recognize that 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 it's easy to get consumed with the cultural challenges around you. And I'm not suggesting we ignore them. Sure. I'm not suggesting they don't matter, but, but to realize that, that those, that those will be swirling f- f- as long as the church is on earth and that we need to make sure that we are preaching the word of God, teaching the gospel, shepherding our flocks um, in the midst of that so that we don't get caught up in culture wars in a way that we neglect the things that God has called us to do. Yeah, I love it when I hear people say it's never been a worse time in history. Exactly. Ask the uh, Christians yeah. in uh, yeah. first century Rome yeah. uh, <laughs> yeah. what it was like uh, I, to I, exist at that time. Yeah, I'll take a little bit of disapproval. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and again, this is not good. And, and we see that, you know, these are the steps. This is how it begins, but we are uh, still Absolutely. in a much better situation. Yeah, I mean, you know, you could argue that, that you know, it starts this way and fast forward 50 to 100 years and maybe not even that long, it could get really bad. Okay, fair enough, you know, and I, I don't, I don't deny that. 
but 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 it's not anything like it was right, uh, right. in the early church and even in biblical history too. Yeah, I heard one uh, church historian say we can't, we can't look at church history in fifty year chunks, chunks but we have to sense. really have 500 year <laughs> segments to understand the progress of Christianity um, it you makes, know, throughout history. It makes sense. Yeah. You, you need a little bit more of a, of a, a bird's eye view to, to see what's actually happening. Now, as, as someone preparing uh, men to take pulpits around the nation, to lead churches, I'm curious, you know, because we, so much of what we do is focused on the next generation and concerns about the next generation. Uh, as, as someone, running a seminary, what do you find, because I think this is instructive about where people are at, what do you find is the biggest hole that needs to be filled? What is the, the greatest lack? Where is the, where's the biggest weakness that you find that you have to do extra work or the most work to sort of bring guys to where they need to be in order to take those pulpits? <laughs> That's a great question. I mean, as a more humorous observation, their biggest weakness is they can't write. That's what I <laughs> wow. always say I as a professor. That, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, students don't know how to articulate themselves in print. I mean, everything is in short little, you know, you know social media bursts. We thought with no that maybe, capitalizations and no punctuation. Yeah, right. we thought texting yeah. and emailing. Hey, people yeah. are writing again, but it really hasn't made it better. So you know, I, you know, that's a little bit of a humorous thing. It doesn't really hit at the the heartbeat of them. But I will say this: is that I've actually been quite encouraged by what I've seen. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's it's standard trope, right, for every generation to say that the next generation doesn't get it and that they've lost their way. And you always like kids these days, you know, type of thing. <laughs> right. And I, I realize that you know that doesn't mean every generation is as good as every other, but there is a certain sense in which that's expected. But I've been very encouraged by what I've seen, at least from the RTS students. They have a passion for the gospel. They love Jesus. They trust his word. Um, I think what I've appreciated about them is they actually are, are, are more interested in engaging the non-Christian world than maybe some prior generations have been. And I think they're just exposed to it more, particularly if they come out of a major university. They're, they know that you can't just you know hole up in isolation. You've got to find a way to engage, interact, and have good answers uh, to the questions that are being asked. And I think apologetics only is interesting to people if they're actually in the world talking to folks. Mm. You know, if you just give apologetic speeches to a church that's that's bubbled up, th that just doesn't seem to meet a need. But for people who are out in the world really talking to non-Christians, it meets a need. And so I've been, I've been, I've been encouraged by that um, and excited to see where that might lead us in the, in the years ahead, because the church has to have a different posture when it finds itself as a minority out of power and and really uh, marginalizing a culture. We, you know, historically in the United States, that's not been that way, um, which is why everyone's in a panic. And I'm like, yeah, but we're actually more like the church historical now yeah. than, 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 than we were before. And I think there's a lesson there. So. On the City of God podcast, we're always exploring what's happening in culture through the lens of God's infallible word. The Explain to our audience the importance of having a biblical worldview of the institution of marriage and family. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, we know that marriage and family is archetypal for human flourishing. It's there from the very start when God made man and woman. So, you know, it's no surprise that our culture is going to challenge that as one of the foundational things, mm -hmm. because it hits at the core of what it means to be human, what it means, what it means to be male and female, what it means to be married, how, how the sexes relate to one another is central to our human existence, and they know that if you're going to contradict and attack Christianity, you're going to attack it there. So yeah, we need to make sure that we're upholding that and affirming that um, and, and defending that. Um, and it's tough because we want to do that and at the same time realize that we have a world out there where a lot of people have been raised in homes that aren't Christian. They don't, they don't, they're not thinking properly about sexuality. How do we 
how do we reach them in a way that we just don't simply rebuke their false ideas, but actually persuade them uh, to see the truth of the Christian thing? So it's it's one thing to counteract, um, which I'm for, but it's also another thing to try to persuade and win over. And I think Again, we probably have some work to do there. And, and how how do we go about that task? And I know this is something we're all wrestling with because uh, engaging the culture on that particular issue, there is nobody wants to be seen at, right out of the mm-hmm. gate as a bigot or a hater yeah. or a phobe of some kind. Exactly. Uh, and yet, uh, the biblical position is very clear, and so there's a need to hold to the truth. And to communicate the truth, uh, and yet we also don't want to add offense to the truth, since the truth will now, in a culture, already be offensive. So how is it that we engage the culture on those issues without just completely compromising and hiding from it and also not just, you know, really becoming angry and, 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 you know, like the old, the old saying goes, uh, you know, the, the, the pastor who had the, the manuscript that they found and it said point weak, uh, bang pulpit. Yeah. You yeah. Know, we, yeah. We don't louder, do louder, right, louder. Right. That'll solve it. <laughs> well, you know, some people seem to have that philosophy that if I can just shout louder, maybe, you know, people will listen, but I think we know that that's not happening nor working. I think one of the things I point out in my book, Surviving Religion 101, is that uh, different generations hear truth in different ways. Um, and in, you know, in, a, in, a, in a generation that came out of what you could argue was modernity, which would have been the generation I came out of, people heard truth in scientific categories, mm-hmm. in historical categories. People today are going to hear truth in relational categories. Um, does that mean that truth, therefore, is relative? Of course not. Truth is real and objective and, and always founded in God's Word. But what allows a person to have a hearing and what allows a person to be receptive to it is going to take a lot more relational capital and relational work than we've had to do in the past. So what I say in the book is, you know, do do you wish you could just make a good argument and that would be it? Well, I kind of wish that. Don't we all? I mean, it would be (laughs) a lot easier. But I'm not saying good arguments don't matter anymore. Of course they do. But they have to be uh, delivered within the context of relationships and with genuine relationships with non-Christians, not just you're my project, but Mm -hmm. we get into their world and their lives, get to know them, and actually they know that you love them even though you're in very different places. That's going to take a lot of hard work, and, and I don't know that we've figured out how to do that yet. Yeah, it's but it but it's it's the ancient calling. Of yes, Jeremiah absolutely. seeking yeah. the peace and welfare of yeah. Babylon. Yeah, uh, for if they prosper, we all prosper That's right. and and flourish. That's right. uh, well, Dr. Michael Kruger, uh, so grateful to have you on the City of God podcast and in town for the Kingdom Come Conference once again. He has written many books. And one of my personal favorites is Surviving Religion 101. Grateful for your voice and leadership, also for the leadership and the voice of your wife, Melissa Kruger, who's oh, an author you. and contributor for the Gospel Coalition, who we hope to have down here in Fort Lauderdale as well. I've read her many times, and only at this moment am discovering that she's your wife. I had no idea. That's that's me. That's exciting. I'm so proud of her. I often (laughs) joke that when people invite me, I think they're just secretly trying to get her to come. (laughs) Well, now that I know, yeah. yeah, Maybe that's that's exactly what happened here. Next time you come, rest assured it's to get her here. Thank you for your voice and your leadership, and God bless you and your work at RTS Charlotte. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's City of God podcast. Make sure that you go to our website, cityofgodpodcast.com, where you can listen to all previous recordings. Also, you can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. We also, you can find the video recording on our YouTube page. Make sure to share this podcast or any of the podcasts that you find relevant or helpful as you're navigating 
what's happening in culture with friends and family and anybody that really is concerned about looking at today's big cultural issues through the lens of God's word. I want to thank you once again for listening and tuning in to the City of God podcast, and we will see you next week.